the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The shipping industry has no shortage of discussions purporting to be about sustainability, but there is a case to be made that we are having the wrong discussions. There's certainly too often a too narrow focus performed in isolation when we come to having these chats. Selecting zero and low carbon fuels is not just about the narrow aspects that are to be regulated, nor are they just about what comes out of a ship's smokestack. Price, availability and technical feasibility, that's all on the agenda right now. But to be truly sustainable over an entire life cycle, are we including sufficient consideration of the operations around the production, the transport, the storage and the use of the marine fuel? So we considered social, labour and human rights, ecological impact, safety, land use change. Probably not is the answer. The shipping industry's impressively ineffective history of regulatory progress can be read as a series of reactive measures closing doors after the proverbial horse has bolted, and almost always done in blind isolation from the unintended but generally unconsidered consequences of their actions. I'm joined today by a special international panel of guests prepared to lift their heads sufficiently to consider the bigger picture of sustainability when it comes to shipping zero carbon transition. Catherine Palmer, Global Sustainability Manager at Lloyd's Register. Mark Lutz, Senior Advisor on Global Climate Policy at WWF's Climate and Energy Practice. And Simon Bennett, General Manager for Sustainable Development at the China Navigation Company. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Catherine, I am going to start with you, if that's okay, because we're having this conversation partly as a result of a paper that was put out by the Sustainable Shipping Initiative, setting out these wider sustainability issues and principles for the industry to consider when looking at fuels. And we're certainly very familiar with the details of CO2 emissions and energy density discussions. But the point here is that we shouldn't really just be focusing on carbon, should we? Um, Well, no, we shouldn't just be focusing on carbon. I think um, what our paper does is um, it's really about getting sustainability on the agenda as we look at a number of different plausible transition pathways that the sector could take. And we're currently in this phase where we're looking at all these different transition pathways and an analysis and tools are being developed to compare potential pathways. And like you said, they're all about price, um, technical feasibility, safety, and then you start to say, well, well, what about sustainable? You know, not only do we need to have safe and commercially viable pathways, but they need to be sustainable as well. And so we need to look at sustainability across the whole life cycle of a potential zero carbon fuel that could be put into the marine market. And so that's everything from the primary resource of feedstock that is used, the um, production process, um, the distribution network and, and bunkering. And all of that happens before you get to the storage and propulsion on board the ship and ultimately used in combustion what comes out out the funnel. Looking at 
all the potential sustainability impacts. And like you said, it's not just CO2. There are other greenhouse gases. Then you get into there are other air pollutants and water usage, other ecological biodiversity potential impacts or consequences. And then it's not just environment, like you said, it's also those social implications, um, whether it's about human rights, whether it's about modern slavery, whether it's also about labour and industrial economic opportunity that can come around. And then you've got governance as well. So the paper is really putting forward um, that potential framework that sort of says, here's all the sustainability criteria or principles that would need to be considered as shipping starts to understand the different pathways that can be taken. Mm. Okay. Mark, let's come to you next. I mean, this must be music to your ears. I mean, the industry has had a, let's face it, a fairly myopic view of such things for, for years and years. And we now seem to be moving from a very narrow discussion around sulfur to the global implications of a, a zero energy transition over the next few decades in, in one fell swoop. Do you think we're having the right conversation? Are we having a holistic enough look at this or are we in danger of going down the pathway of just, again, focusing on one aspect of it at the expense of the wider implications? Hi. So there's certainly a danger of a narrow focus, like in the sulfur discussions. Um, now the IMO is focused on greenhouse gases. And a big part of that, of course, is uh, alternative fuels and the uh, the shipping sector will will need uh, quite large quantities of alternative low and especially zero carbon fuels to achieve decarbonization, um, hopefully by mid-century. And there's a danger in the IMO. This discussion is just getting started in the IMO. There's even a question in the IMO of whether the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions will be taken into account. And that's, uh, for us, of course, that's... Uh, only a starting point. Uh, you have to look not just at life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, but the whole, um, as you and Catherine have already said, the, the whole range of potential impacts on nature, on biodiversity, on the water, air, and on, uh, on land use, uh, land title, um, social impacts, labor over the, over the full life cycle, especially the production. And we're very happy to engage with um, with the shipping sector through the Sustainable Shipping Initiative. Uh, the SSI is very interested in stepping back and taking uh, taking a broader look at the full range of sustainability issues in the uh, shipping sector, which we think is uh, is the right approach. Okay, and then finally, let's come to you, Simon. From an industry perspective, no doubt. A lot of this is going to ring true from your position as a, somebody who's focused on this within a shipping company. But, I mean, let's be honest, the industry as a whole is only just getting to grips with the basics of what the implications of CO2 uh, efficiency derived means. Uh, some of the more advanced elements of our industry are understanding that that is now going to require you know, fairly complex discussions around well-to-wake rather than just tank-to-wake. But, I mean... You know, if we're going to start having to consider land use change and water conservation and social development causes with every single regulatory decision at the IMO, wh where does it stop? You know, what does this mean in terms of the tangible investment decisions that shipping companies are looking at? And is it within the scope of shipping to be able to look at this stuff comprehensively? I think it's certainly within the scope 
of part of the industry. Um, I think you talked about some elements. I will, maybe I'm only meeting the right people in the right places, um, but, <laughs> but I, I see a lot of concerned shipping companies who are trying to do the right thing, who recognize that it's going to cost money, that we can't continue to externalize the negative costs. We have to start being responsible, paying for them. And it's not a very small cohort um, out at the front. I think it's much larger than that. There is a disparity across the industry. There are obviously, out of whatever, 60,000 deep-sea ships, um, maybe 20,000, 10,000 owners, there, are certainly, there is certainly a, a proportion who don't want to pay anything more than they're paying at the moment. But I, I wouldn't underestimate the size of the guys with the white hats who are trying to do the right thing and who recognize that we're going to have to pay for it. And it's not just carbon. It's, as, as you've mentioned, land use change, it's social issues. Um, and, and that's going to have to come. Mm. It obviously helps us as a ship owner if there's a level playing field. And you're probably going to achieve a level playing field with regulation. And regulation seems to come in quite slowly in some areas and quite fast in the EU. Um, but that's what's going to achieve it in the speed that it now needs to be achieved. I think the whole world has woken up to, uh, to global warming as one of the issues. Um, and, and I'm just glad that, that we are now beginning to move in that direction. Let's take the discussion a little bit more narrow and, and ask whether this is a case of us as an industry really just focusing on what is to be regulated. And I think, you know, there is an interesting discussion there about whether the industry is looking widely enough in terms of its regulatory scope at the IMO. Uh, you know, we have had discussions within the IMO context about whether the life cycle emissions uh, needs to be improved. Mark, I'm going to come back to you just briefly. I mean, you've got a better view than most in terms of how the industry fares with other sectors. Say, for example, against aviation within ICAO. How does how is shipping fare in terms of being a little bit more holistic or are we still too narrow, do you think? Um, the, um, the shipping sector in terms of uh, regulation through the IMO is playing a little bit of catch up with the aviation sector in ICAO, the International uh, Civil Aviation Organization. They started for aviation back several years ago looking at uh, alternative fuels and they've actually... Um, taken a life cycle approach to um, certainly to greenhouse gas emissions and are now expanding that to look at other uh, other sustainability criteria as well. A discussion uh, of broader criteria is still ongoing in uh, in ICAO, but it's well advanced and they're, they're taking a, a broader approach that we hope um, the shipping sector can learn a bit from. Mm. I think it's, it's important because, I mean, the question really is, are we as an industry genuinely looking for real reductions in greenhouse gas emissions? And I, I completely accept that we're looking more widely than just the greenhouse gas. But is, is this simply a question of tick box accounting when it comes to uh, really having an impact? Because the well-to-wake performance of shipping fuels, that's the only thing that's really going to matter in terms of genuine reductions. Tank-to-wake, uh, and for those listeners not particularly familiar with the, the, the terminology here, that's just emissions just from the ship. That will mean not much if the fuel um, causes emissions upstream, which is really shifting the problem. And I think there probably is some confusion in the industry over definitions here. We don't 
seem to have all the important sort of standardization over what we mean by carbon neutral or net zero. Um, and while I, I think uh, Simon is right, you know, the people I talk to uh, are well aware of life cycle emissions. And I think they do understand that we're not just looking at ship emissions, uh, it's not just about whether it's green ammonia, um, you've got to look at the, the full life cycle. But I'm not entirely convinced that that conversation is being had universally over the industry. And I, I wonder, maybe, Catherine, before we come back to Simon, how do you view this? Is the industry um, having the same conversation or are we sort of broadly sort of splitting ourselves up into the, the good bit that Simon describes? And, you know, then we, then we have the bad and the indifferent uh, who are, you know, making up, I would say, probably a significant part of the industry still. I think there's different ways of looking at this. And I think, should we consider life cycle greenhouse gases? I think most people will say, yes, it's the right thing to do because we don't just want to shift the problem upstream. So from a societal perspective, I think most people agree it's the right thing to do. But then I think the question you're asking is what should shipping be regulated on? And should the shipping industry be regulated for upstream emissions, which is a very different conversation? And and so I think you'll find that most people say, you know, be careful what you wish for from a regulatory perspective, because we should really only be. So it comes down to carbon accounting and where do you put the boundaries? So the shipping industry should account for its emissions from a tank to wake perspective, because, you know, the emissions from the upstream piece from well to tank are being accounted for in NDCs, national defined contributions under the Paris Agreement that countries have to put in. So what we don't want to end up with is a double counting situation. There's a carbon accounting piece, um, what should shipping be regulated for? But then I think there's a piece around, you know, the shipping industry, if, you, if we want to get credit for using net zero fuels, then we need to look at how we use, what carbon factors we use in our regulatory schemes to be able to get that credit under statutory obligations. So take, for example, the IMO data collection scheme uses carbon factors, which are combustion only carbon factors. So if you're using a methanol, which might be a net zero methanol because its carbon is net, you will still be accounting for the carbon emissions that come out of the funnel. You won't be saying your carbon emissions are zero because they're net across its life cycle. So does that make sense? I think that's how we need to break this down to start to tackle it. You know, what do we want to account for? How do we make sure that those that are using net zero fuels can get the credit for using them under statutory requirements? And then obviously there's the whole, you know, we need to do this from a mm. societal perspective because it's the right thing to do. And, and this is the point, Simon. You know, we are having this discussion and, you know, we will always be having this discussion with the like-minded people at the top that you talk about. But even amongst that set, it has to be said that we accept the 2050 targets, we accept the directional travel that we are going in as an industry, but the devil is in the detail. And this is the point at which the old um, saw about having a level playing field and understanding that your customers and your competitors are having the same conversations you are. Do you have any faith that you are able to navigate these detailed 
discussions in a way that you can actually plan for at the moment? Uh, myself personally, yes, uh, because we are talking to clients, maybe because that's the space we're in in the market, who are fully aware of what they're asking for and they, they understand their understanding of what these various terms mean. Um, so we're having an adult conversation with them. We are talking now on a daily basis with shippers who wish to ship carbon neutral their goods, whether it's um, containers or, or bulk goods. They want to ship them in a carbon neutral way. Mm. So we're doing what we can to help them. I think, to my mind, there is a, a regime out there to, to chop up scope one, scope two, scope three under the, the greenhouse gas protocol. And I had a conversation this morning with a major mining company who are well aware of scope one, two, and three and what belongs to them and what belongs to other people. What we need to be able to do is to provide education to the general public for whom shipping is actually over the horizon far away and they don't consider it very much at all. But we need to show there's no leakage, mm. which is um, generally a sort, of, it's a sort of forestry term. There's no point in us stopping our one acre over here not being chopped down if all that happens is the, the, the loggers go and chop down the, the field next door. Yes. That is important, and we need to watch that very carefully and not just drive the problem somewhere else. Mm. And this is the danger of having this conversation, particularly in shipping, where, by definition, the assets are movable. Uh, they are operating on an international basis within international jurisdictions, and therefore the level playing field is not just uh, you know, an issue of competition. It's a question of having an industry that actually operates and supports global trade. Uh, Mark, just... For the listeners who perhaps are vaguely aware of what Scope 1, 2, and 3 are, just give us the basic explanation of, of what we're talking about when we're talking about Scope 1, 2, and 3, because I think it is particularly important to this discussion. So um, Scope 1 is um, the emissions from a company's direct operations, the most obvious emissions from the assets directly owned by the company. Scope two are the energy, especially electricity inputs to that company. So uh, if a company buys uh, electricity or energy that uh, has emissions coming from outside of its operations, uh, those can be taken into account through scope three, scope two, I mean. And scope three is more what we've been talking about, the about life cycle. It's the um, supply chain, uh, the entire value chain of the goods or services that the company produced. Yeah, others others may have <laughs> may have uh, a better uh, be able to explain that better. That's not exactly my specialty, but no, I th I think obviously there are there are detailed uh, you know implications for each of these and definitions that uh, need to be investigated uh, before making any decisions. But understanding the the broad scope of what we're talking about is important because. I think as an industry, we're very aware of scope one, but I suspect that probably a significant portion of those people listening uh, are going to probably be less au fait with the issues around scope two and three. And I think that's part of the issue. Uh, I mean, Catherine, you know, when you and I have spoken before and you have mentioned that you've been trying to get this into conversation for some time now, but there is a certain reluctance from even people who are engaged probably you know, more, in more detail than most to actually expand the scope? Do you think there is a reluctance to have this conversation simply because it's deemed to be a little bit too difficult given everything else that we're doing as an industry? Um, 
I'm, I'm not so, so sure now. I think the pace of change is moving rapidly. And I think when you start to see the number of commitments and targets that are coming out from private sector organizations, and I think when you look how, you know, ESG requirements are driving those organizations now, there is so many large organizations that have made net zero by 2050 commitments. We've got the whole um, science-based target initiative, which is being led by WWF. So Mark can add more about that. And that is now the shipping methodology is being developed and that will be coming out. And I think, I think there's a lot more corporate responsibility around reporting of greenhouse gas emissions. But I think the differences between what it is we're doing as private sector leadership, what it is we're doing as to meet ESG requirements to get investment and things like that, versus what we will be regulated on. And I think that's why the conversation needs to be split into what do we want to be regulated and what is are we using regulation to remove the barriers or, or that the market hasn't been able to address itself. You know, what, what do we want the regulation to do versus what are companies doing from their own corporate social responsibility and, and ESG requirements? I think they're very different. So the scope one, two and three, a lot of companies are already reporting. They've already made targets and commitments. You know, a lot of organizations now joining. We, we've got the SSI. We've got we're getting to zero coalition. And it's these coalitions and collaborative groups that are really showing leadership. It's just as long you know, as these leadership groups and these first movers, we just have to take everyone with us. Mm. We, we can't leave. We can't leave anyone behind on this because, you know, it's it's about taking them with us. Mark and Simon, building on from what Catherine said there, I mean, is this a hearts and minds campaign as much as a, a regulatory one, do you think, Mark? Um, I don't think we can count on the, uh, on the IMO um, to do... Uh, to do everything for us, um, given the pace that they tend to work at. Um, and there are advantages and disadvantages to this being uh, a truly global sector that uh, no particular country can uh, can take full responsibility for. Um, uh, so it's been very heartening for us to see the real effort that's taken place through uh, initiatives like the Global Maritime Forum, the Getting to Zero Coalition, the SSI, in really uh, taking responsibility for the sector's emissions and trying to move it forward. Clearly, there's uh, some companies and sectors that are laggards and uh, others that are leaders, but I, I think the, the sector has some sense of responsibility for its actions and, uh, and uh, there are signs it's prepared to act on that. But isn't the whole point here is that it's not about these hearts and minds. It's a business need now. If you want to be able to do business with someone else, you've got to have, you know, whether it's your customer demanding zero carbon shipping or whether it's your investor who investors have higher ESG requirements than we do in maritime that makes it very difficult for them to put investment into maritime. I, I think I'm just a bit conscious that we haven't really touched on the fact, uh, you know, that the policy was there to really address when the market can't address this. And if the market's going to address this through financial investment ESG requirements, through customer, and then the policy needs to be complementary to the, that kind of, fundament that shift that we're seeing in the market and i don't think we really picked that piece up around 
But I think, Catherine, that's because you're only talking to ship owners who can get loans from HSBC and Barclays. Um, you're not talking to the people who are flagging their ships in Somalia, have never heard of insurance and certainly don't buy food for their crews. There's a whole horrible area out there, which luckily for you, you're shielded from. Well, no, I don't think it's luckily, you know, I wouldn't say I'm shielded. You know, maybe it is because maybe, you know, we only class ships that are of a certain standard and, and therefore our client base isn't, isn't those. But there is going to become a point where tonnage has to come out of the fleet. And we're going to see that just with the CII regulation. The, the carbon intensity indicators are going to drive inefficient tonnage out of the market if we get this right. Quicker than people expect. We're now looking at 10-year lives for our ships, for new ones that we built in the last couple of years, because it would be too expensive to convert them. That's a, it's a step change in ship ownership and ship management now. My colleagues tend to say that the, the regulations are so weak and so delayed that it, it actually, uh, I, I would be surprised if any new, if any recently built ship wouldn't meet the, the regulations that are going to come in in 10 years uh, from <laughs> listening to my, my NGO colleagues. I, I, think, I think you're right from EXI. EXI is not, you know, but I'm not sure, we're not sure of the level of stringency on the on the carbon intensity indicators yet. And I think uh, that is going to be more the game changer than the EEXI. But that's only if we get it right from a policy perspective. And like you said, if we don't get it right and we end up with something that doesn't drive out old inefficient tonnage or even young inefficient tonnage. <laughs> And, and I think, and I, maybe that's where I'm coming from, is if I link it back to SSI, SSI's vision is that sustainability is, equals success. And the whole point is around getting reward for doing the right thing from a sustainability perspective. And you need to be able to do that just to do business. And that sort of fits, I think, back with SSI's vision. Okay. I, Simon, I'm going to give the last word to you. I'm going to put you in charge of the global uh, maritime trade sector for a, for a week or two. What are you going to do to change things? What, what, what do you think needs to happen here? I hear your last question as to whether it's hearts and minds or regulation. Um, I'm afraid I'm old and wrinkly and cynical and I've been in the industry a long time. <laughs> and I, I would love it to be a question of education and, hey, team, let's all move forward in the right direction. I have never seen that happen. And I can't see a Damascene change happening in the next two weeks or two years or, or 20 years. So I take all of Catherine's points. I was nodding away there, which you can't see on a podcast. You have to be careful what is regulated and what outcome you're looking for. But I only see movement in the right direction in my industry, which I've been in for a long time now, when it's regulated. I think that's sad, but that, that's, that's my personal view, I'm afraid. So you put me in charge of trade for however long that you said, and I would introduce global regulation. Well, I think it will be a better industry as a result, but I do hope your scepticism is proved wrong. I will remain an optimist and work towards a future for shipping where a more holistic approach to regulation moves in lockstep with the sustainable supply chain advances that we're now seeing from an industry that's, I think, moving us beyond a regulatory lowest common denominator. But I guess we will have to see which vision emerges 
over the coming years. But for now, Catherine, Mark, Simon, thank you for joining the Lawyers List podcast. Thank you.